This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Hello, everyone. Uh, we'll begin again today with a 15-minute sitting. So settle into comfortable meditation posture. Take a moment to find a posture that's relaxed and also alert. And slowly, gently closing your eyes. Perhaps taking a few deep breaths as a way of settling into the awareness of the body. And softening the eyes, the jaw, relaxing the shoulders, softening the heart, the belly. And simply settle into the awareness of there is a body. Sit and know you're sitting. And within this framework, there is a body. You may become aware of the body breathing, the sensations of the body breathing. Breathing in. Know you're breathing in, breathing out. Know you're breathing out.
Notice where you feel the breath most clearly. But feeling the sensations of the air as it passes the nostrils, or the sensations of the movement of the chest or abdomen. You feel the sensations of the breath throughout the whole body. Simply to notice breath after breath, how each one is being felt. Other bodily sensations become predominant, open to the feeling of those sensations, and notice what happens to them as you're being aware. And stay alert for the arising of any thoughts or images in the mind. As soon as you become aware that the mind is thinking, you might make a soft mental note of thinking or an image seeing. And notice what happens to that thought or image as you're being mindful.
If sounds appear, simply be mindful of hearing and settling back into the awareness of the whole body sitting, the body breathing. When you're ready, you can open your eyes and pay attention, being mindful of seeing. This is another often overlooked object of awareness. We're going to continue in our discussion of Pancha. So over these last couple of days, we've discussed in some detail the powerful proliferating tendencies of mind and how they help to construct our lived experience. You know, and as I've mentioned many times now, these are the forces of craving, of conceit, and wrong view, all of which are rooted in and further condition the sense of self. So the question and challenge for us, and what I'd like to talk about today is how to weaken and ultimately free ourselves from this source of suffering and difficulty in our lives. So there's one general principle uh, which underlines our practice of this freedom. And really, it's a quite obvious one, given everything that we've talked about. And the instruction was given by the Buddha to his son Rahula. In one discourse from the text, tells kind of gives the background a little story. So the Buddha and Rahula were walking into a village for alms round. And Rahula was following the Buddha. And in some lapse of mindfulness, you know, Rahula looked up and he started reflecting on just the beauty of the Buddha's form. And then reflecting that as the son of the Buddha, he bore a resemblance to the Buddha. And so he was feeling, uh, he was feeling good about that. Uh, well, as the story goes, the Buddha knew what was going on in Rahula's mind. And he stopped and he turned back. And this is how the, the sutta, the discourse describes it. Then the Blessed One looked back and addressed Rahula thus. Rahula, any kind of material form, the body and all other material elements, should be seen as they are with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Okay, so then Rahula asks the Buddha, does this apply only to material form? And the Buddha replied, no, material form, feelings, 
perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, namely the five aggregates, which really is one description of everything. And so the Buddha is saying we should regard every experience, you know, of any of the physical elements, the elements of mind, consciousness itself. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So this very clear, you know, and straightforward teaching is a corrective to the three ways we create and strengthen and manifest the sense of self in our lives. We could think of it in a way, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, as a mantra of liberation, you know, pointing us again and again to the possibility of freedom. Philip Larkin, who is an English poet, he captured, in a way, the motivation behind this investigation, this instruction, when he wrote, I'm tired of going around pretending to be me. <laughs> and I love that. I'm tired of going around pretending to be me. So the challenge, of course, is finding different ways of remembering this, you know, of putting it into practice and seeing for ourselves its benefit, you know, and experiencing the ease and the joy of release from the imprisoning construct of self. Fortunately, a fundamental key to understanding selflessness, which is not immediately intuitively obvious, as I'm sure most of you realize by now. But there is a fundamental key to understanding it and to freeing ourselves, at least to some extent, from the grip of papancha, these proliferating tendencies, which is something very obvious but often overlooked. And that is investigating with greater precision and greater uh, refinement, the truth of change. Well, there's a Japanese, famous Japanese poet, Ikkyu, and I just want to read a couple of lines from one of his poems. He said, look very closely. Only impermanence lasts. This floating world, too, will pass. You know, so that's such a good reminder. Only impermanence lasts. That is the truth of change. Even this floating world and everything in it will pass. And as I've mentioned, it's not hard to understand this conceptually. Right? We all know that things change. It's not an esoteric truth. But we don't usually apply the wisdom of that understanding into our daily lives. You know? So the Buddha often used similes you know, and metaphors to bring his teachings home. Because sometimes a simple image can reveal a deeper understanding you know, or highlight a deeper understanding than a long philosophical discourse. So I'd like to offer one image highlighting 
this very fundamental teaching of the Buddha, namely that everything changes. We really should make that our mantra of liberation, you know, to remind ourselves. So the image is, is expressed in a very few words in a short poem called Samsara, the wheel around of conditioned existence. Samsara, castles of sand at water's edge. So take a moment just to conjure up this image in your mind. Castles of sand, sand castles at water's edge. You know, the fragility and the impermanence of these constructions, these sandcastles, are so clear. You know, a wave comes and washes them away, washes away our carefully constructed castle, whatever that castle might be, you know. Or maybe a heavy rain comes and demolishes the sandcastle. Or maybe a gaggle of kids comes along the beach and just stomps on it. You know, the, ca- the, the castle of sand has no intrinsic stability, no, in, no intrinsic existence. So obviously, it's subject and vulnerable to changing conditions. So then we might ask, what does the sand castle, castles of sand at water's edge, what do they represent? Everything that is constructed, everything that arises out of conditions. And upon reflection, we see that this includes everything, our bodies, our minds, the whole external world, everything arises out of causes and conditions. And this is true on every level of magnitude. You know, this change, this process of change, of creation and destruction, of birth and death, of arising and passing away. On every level, this process of change is happening. You know, as I think I've mentioned, we might think of uh, the changing nature of galaxies and stars or planets, of civilizations, of societies, of individuals. You know, with all of our various thoughts and feelings and life stories, cells and molecules and atoms and subatomic particles, all are castles in the sand. Nothing at all in this whole range of phenomena, nothing at all is stable and fixed. And when we investigate our own experience of impermanence through mindfulness, you know, and with greater and greater clarity, we see that nothing is really lasting long enough to be considered self. You know, our bodies are always changing and thoughts and images and emotions come and go. And even consciousness itself, which we often identify as being a self. But as our practice deepens and the mindfulness strengthens, we see that consciousness itself is arising and passing in each moment. It is a process rather than some fixed, stable entity. What we're calling self, or what I might 
called Joseph is not some stable reality in itself. But as I mentioned, it is a designation. It's a useful concept designating you know, a kaleidoscope of appearances of continual change. So this is what we want to see in our practice. Now, there's another aspect to this as well. And that is we see that all of these changes are following their own natural laws. You know, and they're, they're not simply subject to our will and wishes. The body will age and die regardless of how we feel about that. It is just a natural law. This, this is nature. And the mind, you know, as, as we all know, often feels as if it has a mind of its own. Uh, you know, we see that in very many respects, it is ungovernable. If we could really govern our minds, we could just say, okay, no more unskillful thoughts, no more difficult emotions. You know, so that would be easy if that could happen. But it doesn't happen like that because everything is following, we could call it natural law. So there is a possibility of directing outcomes to some extent if we understand the laws governing the conditions necessary for a desired outcome. If we understand the lawfulness of it, and we understand what conditions are necessary, then we can cultivate those conditions, you know, and hopefully, at least some of the time, uh, we will experience the outcome that we desire. And this is really the great gift of the Buddhist teachings, because he laid out so clearly the conditions or the causes for suffering in our lives. And he laid out the conditions and causes for greater ease, for greater peace, for greater freedom in our lives. So given this deep understanding and experience of continuous change, it's like the flowing water of a, of a river and that conditions are not simply subject to our will. The Buddha's instruction to Rahula, and we really want to understand it as the Buddha's instruction to us, becomes a very direct pointing to the possibility of freedom. And again, to remind you, in the Buddha's words, see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. Of course, a very big question remains, which is, how do we actually practice this liberating understanding, not only in formal meditation, but really in, in the busyness of our lives in the world, in the middle, in the midst of our daily ordinary activities? So going back to the story of the Buddha and Rahula, 
so the Buddha gave Rahula these instructions. And, you know, as I said, they were walking into town uh, for alms. So after the Buddha gave these instructions, it said that Rula had this thought. Who would go into town for alms after personally being instructed and exhorted by the Buddha himself? And so he then turned around, sat down at the foot of a tree for the day's meditation. But happily, there are some very simple and direct ways to explore this teaching, even in the midst of taking a meal or in the midst of different activities of our lives. So I'd like to share with you one practice which I found just particularly helpful and illuminating. And that is taking some time. And it could be a short period of time. It could be maybe five minutes or 10 minutes at a time. And holding the question in mind, moment after moment, what is being known? That's all. That's very simple. We just settle back and become aware, pay attention, be mindful of what is being known moment after moment. So, for example, with eating, the conventional answer to the question, if somebody asks, well, what are you doing? You'd say, I'm eating. Thereby strengthening that sense of I am, strengthening the sense of my food. So just for a moment, reflect on how pervasive these proliferating tendencies are. You know, that response would just be the very normal response that that all of us would have in answering that question, what are you doing? So it's just to see how craving, conceit, and wrong few really infiltrate almost every part of our lives, continually reinforcing the sense of self, the sense of an I doing it all. But with interest and with strong mindfulness and investigation and with the question, moment after moment, what is being known? We see that experiences are really arising and passing away moment after moment. That what we call eating or what we might say, I'm eating, are really sequential moments of the sensations of chewing and tasting and swallowing, interspersed probably with moments of knowing sounds or knowing sights, knowing thoughts. All of these things are being known. The sensations of the chewing and tasting and swallowing being known. The sound being known, a thought being known. And when the mind is settled back, you know, into each of these experiences with bare attention, seeing how each one of these experiences, which are very simple, they're very ordinary. And we don't we don't have to have been practicing for 30 years to be aware of all of these moments being known. We see 
you know, for ourselves directly, how quickly they're all arising and changing and passing away, moment after moment. And when we see this, then, and this this would be very helpful to notice, uh, you know, if you if you make this experiment, that when we're with our experience in this way, settled back in a relaxed way, it really becomes quite effortless of just, okay, what is being known? Different sensations of chewing, of tasting, of swallowing, you know, of hearing, of seeing, of thinking. When we're settled back in that mode, then there is no forward leaning into the next moment. You know, and for example, in eating, wanting or craving a new taste, even while we still have food in our mouths from the last mouthful. You know, it's so interesting just to notice how conditioned we are to be leaning forward. It's that craving for becoming, you know, craving for a new hit of sense pleasure. How it keeps us leaning forward, anticipating, you know, wanting, craving, all rooted in that sense of I, of I am. But when we settle back, and simply are aware of different things being known, all of that falls away. And we really come to a place of much greater ease, much greater balance in our lives. There is no sense of I, no sense of I'm the one eating. There's no agitation or perturbation of mind. So here I want to highlight the importance of language and how the language we use to describe our experience can so deeply condition our understanding without our even realizing it. So I've mentioned how we basically misunderstand the meaning of the word self, taking it to be something real, something substantial, rather than being a simple designation for a changing process, for the unfolding process of our lives. So here in this exercise of holding this question, what is being known? It changes our usual linguistic framework, just in the framing of this question in this way, it changes the linguistic framework from the active voice to the passive voice. So in the active voice, generally, you know, we would say, I'm eating, I'm walking, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, so there's the subject, the verb, the object. But this very common most common use of language. This is how we usually speak, you know, and write in this act of voice. Unknowingly, it's reinforcing the sense of I, the sense of self, because that's how we're constructing our language about the experience. It's so interesting that this use of language already posits the I someone 
knowing these things, someone doing these things. <laughs> the writing teachers will often advise against using the passive voice. In this particular meditative context, I have found it so amazingly useful. When we relanguage what is happening, relanguage to ourselves, it's not that we're necessarily giving voice to it, but when we relanguage our holding experience from I'm knowing this taste, I'm knowing this sound, to a taste being known, a sound being known, a thought being known. Just in this way of languaging, in this construction, there is no self, there is no I, sounds being known. It is so simple. And as you do this exercise, you could also try it in walking. And this is where I first began playing with this. And again, just found it so helpful. So I was just doing walking. Framing it in this way, just the sensations of the movement being known. The whole walking practice became so effortless because the knowing was happening quite spontaneously. Just in the movement being known, touch being known. So we begin to find that greater sense of ease, and we could even say spontaneity, in the knowing of our unfolding experience. So there's another practice that quickly reveals the momentary nature, the changing nature of experience. And this is, this is an exercise in seeing how things are continually falling away. Now, generally, in meditation, there is a whole stage of insight where we're seeing just the rapid disappearance of things. But there's another way of experiencing this that's available very easily. You know, we don't have to have gone to any great depth in our meditation practice. And it came to me, I was just going for a walk one day, just an ordinary walk. You know, it was a beautiful day on a country road. And at a certain point, the thought came into my mind. Well, what happened to the step of five minutes ago? And I realized that step, completely gone, no trace of it left. And then I thought, well, what about a step of four minutes ago or three minutes ago, two minutes ago? Completely gone. You know, that, that experience was no longer there. And then one minute ago, 30 seconds ago, 10 seconds ago, one second ago. You know, so I just brought my mind right up to the moment. And having gone on that trajectory, it was so clear seeing how things are continually falling away, falling away, falling away, falling away. It's like water over a waterfall. So I would suggest, if you like, to play with this, you know, because it gives such an immediate and direct experience of the impermanent insubstantiality of experience. It's no longer about, you know, the Buddhist philosophy. It's about 
our own direct experience of this truth of change in a very immediate and powerful way. Because in being on that cusp of change, you know, things falling away, it's so clear that it's not even possible to hold on to things, you know, when we're, when we're seeing that clearly. Okay, so we can use the exercise of what's being known. We can begin to play with this sense of being on the cusp of things falling away moment after moment and really being in that experience. There's yet a third way, which and this was suggested very specifically by the Buddha, which again proves to be a very direct and immediate experience of not mine, not I, not myself. And this is using the framework of the physical elements, uh, which again, as you'll see, reveals the importance of how we language things, you know, and how, how conditioning language we use can be, and how language uh, can reinforce the subtleties of Pampancha even without our realizing. So in this particular exercise, in using the framework of the physical elements, as a way of languaging our experience. Just want to remind you that in the classical texts, the Buddha used a kind of shorthand, which was common in those times, to describe the experience, the felt experience, of the different physical elements. Okay, so here in talking about the elements, we're not talking about you know, the periodic table of elements that we might have learned in chemistry class. Uh, so this is quite some something different. Here we are actually using a terminology to describe the felt experience of different physical sensations. And these are classically described, you know, in the Buddhist time and in the texts as the earth, air, fire, and water elements. So we're doing walking meditation. And again, keeping in mind that we're going to bring in this framework of the elements. So we're doing walking meditation. And what's interesting to notice is that even when we're being mindful of the movement, there can be a certain and subtle overlay of an impression, I'm walking. It's not that the thought is even active in the mind, but it's almost just some subtle sense of the way we're holding our experience. I'm walking even as we're being mindful of the different sensations. Or there could be an almost subliminal overlay of the image of foot or leg, and then my foot or my leg. So as an experiment, and I really encourage you, if you're interested, for you to play with all of these different ways, because for me, they were all very revealing. They were impactful. They changed my understanding of things. So as an experiment, and again, it can be for a short period of time. It could be maybe five minutes or 10 minutes you know, of your walking practice, start noting 
the movement and the touch in terms of the elements. So, for example, as I was doing this, as I felt the sensations of the forward movement, I noted or I framed it in my mind as air element. The feeling of movement, the sensation of movement is air element. And then as touched the ground, felt the sensation of hardness, I noted it and held it as earth element. So I just did this for a while. Oh, air element, earth element. And I was connecting, you know, those notes or those words with the actual felt experience of the sensation. So it wasn't just kind of words going on in my mind. You know, it's, it was connected to the feeling of movement. Oh, this feeling air element, touching earth element. And it was amazing. Within a very few steps, just by doing that and by repeating that, the concept of foot or leg, even, even on the subliminal element, completely fell away. The whole sense of I'm walking completely fell away. There was just an element, air element. It was so clear and so immediately obvious that the earth element or the air element, they weren't mine. They didn't belong to me. They weren't self. They were just the basic physical elements, completely non-personal, manifesting their own nature. In those moments, no I, no me, no mine. And so just as a foretaste, even now, you know, before you before you even do or make this experiment, consider whether you would even say my air element or I am the air element. <laughs> we would never, we would never express this experience in that way. So if you practice this, and I have found this to be so helpful, I bring this in even outside times of formal walking meditation. I can just be moving about, and particularly in times, if there's some, I don't know, mental unease or disturbance of some kind, or even not, it's just in kind of the ordinary frame of mind, dropping in to this way of being with each step because it frees us from the notion of I, me, mine, you know, of self. It very much, just in the moment, can extricate us from, from our stories, which may be going on of, you know, where, where there may be some kind of difficulty or suffering or unease or distress of some kind. And because most of those situations revolve around a strong notion of I and self. And so we use these very simple techniques. They're not complicated. And we've talked about how practice is simple but not easy. This practice is simple and easy. <laughs> so I would really, really encourage you to do it. Just air element, earth element, air element, earth element. And really 
having that experience of the non-personal nature of the elements of the body. So every time we do this, and again, it can even be for short periods of time at a time, it frees us. It cuts through the power of these three proliferating tendencies. Okay, if you're not quite yet inspired enough to do it, this perhaps will pique your interest even a little more. Because this teaching on the elements is precisely the teaching the Buddha gave to Rahula as a way for Rahula to free his mind from Papancha. So this is, this is what the Buddha said. Now, both the internal and external earth element is simply earth element. And it should be seen as it is with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And then Rabuda said, the Rahula said, just the earth element? And went on to say, no, this is true of all of all the elements. You know? And so we can have the same benefit that Rahula got from hearing the words of the Buddha if we take this, these instructions to heart and actually apply them. You know, and you can really see for yourself the power of such a simple exercise. So again, I would really encourage you to experiment. Experiment with all of these possibilities. You know, framing the question, again, perhaps even short periods of time. What is being known? Seeing things falling away moment at the moment, being right at the cusp, that edge of the falling away, like being just at the lip of a waterfall. Or beginning to frame the experience of movement in terms of the elements. I find that all of these is just a reminder, and it's, it feels really helpful to be reminded of this again and again, is that the Buddha was not interested in expounding philosophical views. That's not what the teachings were about. He was offering them all as instructions to us, you know, for practice, because these are the practices that liberate our hearts and minds. We can also see how our deeply understand how deeply understanding selflessness or non-self by cutting through these proliferating tendencies of craving, conceit, and wrong view expresses itself in the lived experiences of the Brahma-Biharas, which Shelley and Bruni and later today Kamala have all been teaching in terms of a formal meditation practice. But we can also see how the understanding of selflessness or non-self say, brings about, you know, quite, quite naturally, these beautiful, ennobling qualities, you know, of metta, of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, of equanimity, right in the midst of our daily lives. It's not, it's not simply limited to 
of formal meditation practice. So I'd like to just give you a few examples of how these really beautiful states of mind manifest when we're not caught up. They manifest naturally when we're not caught up in I, me, mine. But first, I'd like to just share one story about the arising of metta in a situation in which it was not at first uh, manifesting very strongly. This goes back uh, many years, 1974. I had just come back from this long stint in Asia, in Bulgaria. And in the summer of 74, I was teaching at the first summer session of Naropa Institute. Right? It was just formed. You know, and there were these big classes with Ramdas and Trungpa Rinpoche. And I was teaching the meditation sections of Ramdas's big class. So there were a couple of thousand people here. It was kind of like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it was, it was the first gathering. You know, so many people from all over the country who were interested in Eastern philosophy. So Ramdas was actually giving teachings on the Bhagavad Gita, Trungpa Rinpoche, on the Four Noble Truths. But I had known Ramdas in India, and he had invited me to teach Vipassana, teach mindfulness, as part of his big class. I was working really hard. We were, we were having maybe six or seven different classes a day. There were so many people. And Naropa had given me this small one-bedroom apartment, faculty, faculty housing. So I was there teaching, working hard, busy. And it was that summer that a lot of my friends from India came back to the States. Of course, many of them had no place to live. They didn't have jobs. What should we do? Well, let's go visit Joseph in Boulder. Okay, they knew I had an apartment. So I don't know, maybe six or seven of my old India friends showed up on my doorstep and kind of moved in to my apartment. You know, just sleeping on the floor in the living room. And for a while, I was getting... A little upset by this. You know, I was tired, I was working hard, and all of these people, uh, you know, were crashing in my apartment. So this went on for a little bit. I can't remember now how long. But then I started really just thinking about okay, well, why? <laughs> why is this? How am I getting caught up in this kind of suffering? And I realized when I, when I actually looked, you know, and took an interest in the situation. I looked and I saw that the reason that I was getting a little uptight about all of this is that because I was holding very strongly to the notion that it was my apartment. (laughs) And it was so revealing and so interesting. As soon as I let go of that particular belief that it was my apartment, then It simply became a shared space in ways that we had done so many times in India. I had shared space with many more than seven people, you know, in in a room. And it was just so interesting. As soon as I let go of the I mean mine, then all the meta that I had for these dear friends, that came forth. And so then there was a feeling of generosity and loving kindness and Friendship, and it all came about letting go of or coming out of the grip 
of the sense of I, the sense of self, the sense of mind. So this happens a lot, you know, and we can see how metta really flourishes in the experience of selflessness. We'll talk a little bit about compassion. You know, compassion, in a way, we could say compassion is method directed towards beings who are suffering. You know, and it's really the hope and the wish, may you be free of suffering. Well, I think we'd all like to be more compassionate, but sometimes it's difficult. And it's especially difficult when we're holding on to I, me, and mine. Because often we don't like to be, we don't like to be often with our own pain or discomfort. And at times we don't like to be open to the pain and suffering of others. So I'll just I'll share one little story with you. This goes back to my time in Bulgaria, in India. And for those of you who've been in India, you probably remember just that there are lots and lots of wild dogs around in really pitiful conditions. I mean, they're starving and mange and really terrible conditions. Nobody's caring for them. Very little food. And I remember at different times, kind of in between retreats, I might be walking into the bazaar, uh, you know, the village of Bogaya to a chai shop, just for a cup of chai and maybe some sweets. And often, you know, these dogs would be around. And it was very interesting for me to observe the range of my responses. There were times when I just didn't want to let it in. You know, I wanted to enjoy just a relaxed time, enjoy my chai, enjoy the sweets, you know, and just kind of blocking it out. And at other times, I'd be going to the, the tea shop, having the sweets, sitting. And if I was more open and less about I, me, mine, and just being there open to what was all around me, you know, in the environment, and I could let, I could really let the suffering of these poor dogs, let the suffering in, you know, and feel it. The compassion arose so spontaneously. I didn't have to think to be compassionate. It's just when I when I let go of the self-reference, you know, and just was there in an open-hearted way, the suffering was so obvious. And the compassionate response came so effortlessly. It was really beautiful. And so I would just, you know, share a little bit of food. Obviously, I wasn't going to solve the problem of all these starving dogs in India. But in the moment, and with those one or two dogs, I could do something. So that compassionate response, again, came out of letting go of self-reference, you know, of self-centeredness. And it comes quite spontaneously. And this is what's so beautiful, you know, about how our practice of insight and our understanding, our, our gradual understanding of selflessness begins to manifest in these beautiful ways. Now, talk a little bit about how selflessness 
and our experience of it can manifest as mudita, as sympathetic joy, empathetic joy, which really means taking delight, enjoying the happiness in the happiness of others. What's a little bit surprising is that this, in many ways, might be the most difficult of the four Brahma-viharas, which is an interesting commentary on our condition of really taking delight in other people's happiness. So there's one story I want to share. This is not a personal story, but it's about the French essayist Montaigne. And I came across, I was reading an article about him, and I came across something that he he wrote about. And he's describing a friendship. And this was, as he described it, just a tremendously deep and intimate friendship. It wasn't, it wasn't a sexual relationship. It was just this very intimate and close friendship that was, that was really uh, a huge part of his life. So this is what he wrote about this friendship. And I find it so striking and so illuminating of a possibility that it's really inspiring. So this is what Montaigne wrote. In a truly loving relationship, which I have experienced, rather than drawing the one I love to me, I give myself to him. Not merely do I prefer to do him good than to have him do good to me, I would even prefer that he did good to himself rather than to me. It is when he does good to himself that he does most good to me. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. I find this quite amazing. You know? Because it really shows that this quality of taking delight in the happiness of others, this quality of love for another, that is not about me. It's about the other person. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. You know, so just imagine what would what it would be like if we could hold all our relationships in that way. You know, it's 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 a powerful teaching. So the last of the four Brahma Viharas is equanimity. And this is expressed really in in one, we could say, a pith teaching of the Buddha, uh, which points directly to liberation. And we can, each of us, experience it for ourselves, even if it's just for a few minutes at a time. This is what the Buddha said, this, this, this core teaching. 
When seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When not clinging, it's not agitated. And when not agitated, it personally realizes Nibbana, the highest peace. When seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. So that's going back to that exercise of seeing things just falling away, or even in just things being known moment after moment, seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. This is not even possible to cling because we're seeing the change so clearly. When it doesn't cling, it's not agitated. So here again, in these instructions, I wouldn't take it on faith. I would put them into practice and see for yourselves whether it's true. So at those times when you are seeing impermanence, when you are right on the cusp of things falling away, see for yourself whether in that moment the mind is clinging or not. And if it's not, really notice the quality of the mind not clinging. Right? Because we're right there in the experience of it. And take a look when the mind is not clinging. Is it agitated or not? You know, so we test this. We test this for ourselves. So what I found is that, uh, as is always the case so far, that the Buddha's instructions seem to pan out. When I look to see when my mind wasn't clinging, so yes, the mind is not agitated at this time. And when it's not agitated, we get a taste, and maybe it's a foretaste of realizing Nibbana, you know, the highest peace. And if you remember, you know, understanding Nibbana as freedom from greed and hatred and delusion. So we could say maybe it's experiencing momentary Nibbana, right? But we see it. We actually, we actually are realizing the truth of this for ourselves. So I'd like to close with these last words of the Buddha. So imagine the scene. You know, the Buddha at the time of his death, what's called his Parinibbana, died at the age of 80 after a lifetime of teaching you know, and he was surrounded by his disciples of nuns and monks and laywomen and laymen. So just imagine the scene. I mean, this is, you know, a tremendously powerful moment, you know, great enlightened being, the Buddha, passing away. And this is his very last teaching, his final advice, his final exhortation. You know, so you can imagine that people were sitting there really paying attention. <laughs> yeah, and so I think we should listen to these words as if we're there, as if the Buddha is giving us this advice and exhorting us in this way, because then it can have a really powerful impact you know, on our path of practice. So we said, with the light of perfect wisdom, 
dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. The light of perfect wisdom that is seeing all things as not mine, not I, not myself. Dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. So that's really an important, well, it seems obvious, it's an important teaching to take in. Because the implication of that one line, subject to decay are all conditioned things, is that no conditioned things, no conditioned thing is ultimately reliable, you know, is ultimately a refuge because it's all changing. And so, in understanding that, even as we play in the world and live in the world in the midst of all our daily activities, if we hold this understanding, then we don't get ensnared. We don't get so caught up in it. And we continue to deepen our practice of letting go, of not clinging. The Buddha often talked, the phrase that we find often in the, in the discourses, Liberation through non-clinging. You know, so this is our practice. For all of us, you know, we need to find ways in the midst of our busy lives in the world to remember and put into practice these teachings. Because these are the teachings that free the heart. I find it inspiring to remember that people have been practicing this and realizing the fruits of the practice for thousands of years. And just reflecting on that and realizing that now it's up to us. We each have to do it for ourselves. So let's just sit for a couple of minutes to let all the words settle hopefully be absorbed and integrated you know, into your understanding. With the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. May all beings be at peace. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour. 